Campuses around the country open and, you guessed it, have COVID outbreaks. Are things looking better or worse for the football season? Where does Liberty fit in? And in case we are able to kick off next month, Virginia Tech and UVA are busy getting their teams ready to play. All that, plus former Charlottesville and Harrisonburg sportscaster Damon Dillman joins the program this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 17 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC Sports Podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and here with me as always is my co-host, the 13-time Sports Writer of the Year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. David, how are you? Good morning, Mike. I'm well and hope everyone in Charlottesville is doing the same. Well, thank you. And I believe you celebrated a, a pretty momentous uh, event while we've been on this break. So I, I believe I owe you a, a happy anniversary. Well, thank you. Yeah, we uh, celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. We had originally uh, planned to either go hiking in Canada or gambling in Vegas. <laughs> and, and the pandemic said, mm, you're not going to do either of those and then we were actually going to come up and go hiking in Charlottesville. And then the weather said, no, you're not going to do that either. So we stayed home. Well, well, you and the family have an open invitation anytime you want to come to Charlottesville. And I, I did notice that uh, for your anniversary meal, you had a meal that I also went with in the past two weeks that uh, it kind of takes me to the beach. What, what did you end up eating? Oh, we had a seafood boil. Unlike you, Mike, we we did not fix it ourselves. That was carry out, brother. <laughs> oh, it is. Uh, it is one of the uh, one of my favorite things. I think to eat. Um, it's such a social, such a social meal, right? Because you're got everything kind of spread out. You're interacting, and obviously, I also love crab and shrimp, which is a, a huge part of that. So, uh, happy anniversary, and, and glad you got a good meal in. Thanks. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about football on the field, football, rosters, depth charts, position battles, because bluntly, I, I think we all miss it. I think we all need it. Uh, but we can't ignore current events. And, and David, it, it feels like it's been the classic case of, of taking two steps forward and one step back here of late. We've seen college programs, including UVA right here in the Commonwealth, really have success keeping their players and their staff COVID-free, really nailing it with this bubble concept, but we're also seeing campuses across the country reopen and suffering outbreaks of the virus in the student body population. We've seen it with Notre Dame. We've seen it with North Carolina. We've seen it with App State. So I want to start today by asking you this. Can those two topics be separated? If college campuses have COVID outbreaks and have to shut it down and go to online classes, can there be college football? Mike, I've pivoted on this. If you had asked me this question a month ago, two months ago, certainly, I would have said no chance. But now, as I take the temperature of the room, as I think about it myself, I've concluded, why not? They've, they've asked these young people and these coaching staffs and these support staffs to do all this work and prepare and live in this proverbial bubble. And then are you just going to say, ah, the, the heck with it, because we've had COVID outbreaks on campuses, which everyone could have predicted anyway? 
know, I I jumped on a on a Zoom session with Mac Brown, the North Carolina coach, yesterday, and he said flat out, "This doesn't change anything for us at all. In fact, it might make it easier for us to create, in his words, a seal around his program." Yeah, you bring up two points that I really strongly agree with. Um, number one, and it's sort of the cliche of the day, but I hate the idea of moving the goalposts. And it feels like these programs were were basically dared. Like, okay, come back, have your practices, we'll see what happens. And the majority of the results we're seeing have been very successful. And these programs, these coaches, these kids, these staff, they've hit the goalpost, right? They've done what was asked of them. They came back, they've sacrificed a lot, they've been disciplined, and they're not having these outbreaks. So to now say, you guys did great, but because we've got an outbreak on frat row or because we've got, you know, the German club all has COVID, you guys can't play football now, to me seems unfair. And the second thing is the let us play movement, where really I think for people in the media and fans, we heard pretty loudly and clearly how the players feel. They want the option to play. Uh, they want the option to opt out if they don't feel safe. Um, and, and I find that a hard argument to, to counter if you can do it safely within the bubble, especially in these schools that are sending their, their regular students home. Yeah. And t- two things on, on that, Mike, I think they want to, pl- well, I know they want to play, but there's an if there, I believe. And that's if they believe that their program and the program they're competing against are doing all they can to keep it safe. And that is a great point that brings us to the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, and I'm just going to say the mess, because I don't know another word for it, the mess at Liberty. Liberty from the onset has kind of balked at some of the recommendations regarding COVID. If you think back to March when the pandemic really started to pick up and you know we left Greensboro and everything was shutting down, Liberty was, I believe, the only one in Virginia that said, we're going to open up for students. Now we have Hugh Freeze talking to uh, Damien Sordelay from the, the Lynchburg News in advance. He says that the program went two weeks without testing for COVID because the athletes who were screened didn't show any symptoms. So if they didn't show symptoms, they didn't need to be tested. This raised a lot of red flags. The, the football players at Syracuse pointed to this. How big a concern is it, one, what's happening at Liberty, and two, the idea that maybe you can't control other programs? Well, and the the crux of the matter, Mike, being Liberty is scheduled to play three ACC teams this season, Virginia Tech, NC State, and Syracuse. Now, none of those games is scheduled until October, but Liberty has been called out on this, especially after Damien's tweet Then John Wildhack, the Syracuse athletic director, issued an unequivocal statement saying, if you don't meet ACC protocols, we're not going to play you. That's ACC policy. That's our policy, which then prompted a counterstatement from Liberty saying, yes, we understand that. Yes, we will meet the testing protocols of any opponent we play. But I'll tell you what, Liberty better be able, if, if I'm an, an athletic director of a program that's going to play Liberty, Liberty better be able to show me tangible evidence 
that it is meeting those protocols because the quickest way to derail this entire venture is to compete against someone who has been lax in protocol. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing about COVID, coronavirus, the college football model. You're not just going to mess up yourself, right? Even within a program, if you're the one player that, that breaks the bubble and violates protocol, you didn't just cost yourself the season. You're endangering your whole team. And when you endanger your whole team or you have a team like in this case, Liberty, that isn't kind of up to, to snuff with the testing and you play somebody else, you're endangering that program. And then you're endangering whoever they play. And and you're right. That's the domino that sends this whole thing spiraling down. And there's so many people working so hard uh, to get this done. It's just, it's sort of distressing when you see the one outlier there that says, well, we're kind of doing our own thing, but we'll come in line when you need us to. And uh, it's a little discouraging, and, and it makes me wonder about the future for Liberty. Remember, they're an independent. How how easy is it going to be for them to schedule in the future with sort of this in their background of, hey, maybe not a great scheduling partner in terms of, you know, here on the, on the biggest stage, the, the brightest spotlight, this is how they're reacting. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's going to be interesting as as it moves forward, and as we mentioned, none of these games appears on the schedule in, in, until October. And you know, we were talking earlier about football without students on campus. Clearly, as we move forward in the name, image, and likeness debate, college presidents are going to have to just convince themselves that they are comfortable with that optic. If, if they want to play football, and there's a lot of reasons to play football, even beyond the economic, I think it would benefit players. It would, it would help save jobs in the athletic department. It would just be such an outlet for fans and knuckleheads like you and me who do this for a living. But the presidents have to come to grips with the amateurism model is going to be completely whitewashed if, if this is what happens, because clearly they will not be strictly amateur athletes. You have them there as entertainment, and you are going to have to, in some way, shape, or form, compensate that, compensate them for that. And now how that works, we don't know. Clearly, in my mind, college athletics is never going to be the same after this. If student athletes are students and students aren't allowed on campus, you're essentially saying that they're what? They're essential employees if you're going to have them there. And if they're essential, essential employees, that means they're employees <laughs> and employees get paid. And, and I think you're right. That's the way we're trending anyway. And maybe COVID just gave us that extra violent shove in that direction. Um but I, I'm with you that I've sort of come around to the thought of if these kids have put in the effort and done the right things to be in position to play, and if we believe and the doctors seem to be trending this way that within the bubble, within a bubble, they can do this safely, I think they deserve the shot to do that. Uh, again, within the framework of acknowledging these aren't everyday students, these are athletes and athletes want to compete. And one of the things athletes want to compete for is a championship. And that brings us to this week's Take It or Leave It. Thank you, Mike. This is Take It or Leave It. We have three Power Five conferences, the ACC, the SEC, 
in the Big 12 that are planning to play this fall. The other two, the Big 10 and the Pac-12, are looking at the spring. So, knowing that, take it or leave it, there will be a college football playoff this January. Mike. I still don't think it happens. I I still think that as these students come back, as the, the campus model crumbles, I think enough programs are going to lose control of their bubble that one or two of those power fives are going to go down. I I think we're much closer towards me saying, take it. We're we're much closer towards me kind of marking the calendar uh, for a college football playoff uh, around my birthday. It's, it does feel like we've made some progress, but again, to go back to what we said in the open, two steps forward, one step back, it still feels like this thing is waiting to crumble underneath our feet as much as we hate to admit it. So I'm going to leave it. I think if there's a college football playoff, it's coming in the spring. David? Yeah, unfortunately, I'll leave it as as well, guys. I just It's such a house of cards right now. And at any moment between now and mid-November, it could all fall apart. Just absolutely crumble. And it wouldn't take much to do it. And on the flip side, to get to January, it I mean, it's the equivalent of drawn to an inside straight. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it really is. You have to get, they'd have to get so fortunate. Now, the college football playoff has made clear that if there is a season, it is prepared to stage the playoff without the Big Ten and the Pac-12. Feel free to insert your own joke there because (laughs) neither conference has fared well in the CFP of late. But I I found that fascinating that that they came out that strongly and that early and saying, hey, we're prepared. And, And the funny thing is three members of that 13-person selection committee, their schools aren't playing football this year, but yet they're going to be ostensibly selecting the playoff field. It's fascinating. Yeah, they'll be very impartial. (laughs) Now, now I promised some real X's and O's football talk. I know both our answers there were kind of a downer, but let's get to it. And let's take some time and preview fall camp for Virginia Tech and for UVA. Let's start in Charlottesville with the Cavaliers. coming off a Coastal Division title, coming off, obviously, the win over the Hokies that ended that long, painful losing streak, coming off an Orange Bowl appearance. David, there's a program there that really didn't want its momentum broken. Not that anyone does, but um, if there's anybody that felt like they were trending in the right direction, it it had to be the Who's, right? Absolutely. And go from two wins to six wins to eight wins to nine wins in a coastal division and orange bowl bid that that is you like that trend line and clearly uh, virginia wanted to sustain or wants to sustain that momentum but yet in in the times we find ourselves mike we don't even know right now if Virginia is going to play that first week, because now that VMI is off the schedule because of the Southern Conference's decision to opt out, is Virginia going to be able to find another opponent? Does it want to start the season September 19th in Blacksburg? I mean, you, you'd think they'd want some kind of uh, precursor to that, but who knows if they can find somebody at this late date. Yeah, I think there's no doubt they would like a game there, but to your point, 
Do they find somebody? And it's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting year for the Cavaliers. Obviously, it's going to be an interesting year for everybody. But um, you think about replacing Bryce Perkins, and you think about the way he transformed that offense. Um, he took that offense to, to a whole nother level, and he did it you know, individually. Certainly, there was tremendous strides made throughout the program. There were some really good players like Joe Reed and Hasis Dubois, and all of those players developed and emerged, and that was a big part of it. But Bryce Perkins was that, that engine that made it go. He was the part that was missing. And now you've got a situation where he's gone. We're not quite sure what they have in his place so what do we expect this offense to look like? We don't know. We, I mean, we, we really don't. I mean, none of us has seen with our own eyes really much of Keaton Thompson or, or Brennan Armstrong. And so it, it just seems impossible to, to know what it will look like. We know what the coaches have told us. They compare Armstrong to the quarterback they coached at, at BYU, Taysom Hill, and all of us have seen Taysom Hill not only at BYU but with the New Orleans Saints in the hybrid role he has carved out for himself there in the NFL. Thompson was a starter on a Mississippi State team that beat Louisville in the Gator Bowl. That's a nice pelt to, to have on your wall. So I, I think there's – some encouraging signs there for Virginia to latch on to, but you know, good luck trying to figure it out. Yeah. You know, it's funny with, with Thompson and it would be easier if we knew, right. If we knew Brendan Armstrong's the guy and okay, I can envision this or Keaton Thompson's the guy and I can envision this, but um, we don't know. It's going to be sort of a, a rushed competition. Although I, you know, I asked Bronco Mendenhall about that. Did he feel rushed this preseason because particularly of the quarterback situation. And he said, no, he said, he feels like they've got ample time. He said, if anything, it's, it's extra time. It's about keeping the team healthy. Um, I I think he's a pretty honest, blunt, straightforward guy, but I do think, um, I do think there's some pressure on them to, to make this decision sooner rather than later. They didn't have the advantage of, of spring where you would have gotten a real good look at Armstrong and maybe you could have focused a little more on Thompson in the fall, but you know, we've heard some good things. I'll tell you that Lorenzo Ward, um, former Virginia Tech assistant. He was coaching uh, at Louisville against Thompson in that bowl game. And he told me, there's a quote, quote, he will be a better version of the quarterback Virginia just had. This kid throws the ball way better than Perkins. And I think he's just as good as an athlete as Perkins is. That's a pretty, pretty <laughs> strong compliment considering what we saw from Bryce Perkins. It absolutely is, and Virginia faithful uh, hope each night that Whammy Ward <laughs> is, is 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 correct, and if he is, then then look out because, as you well know, and Virginia fans know, that defense should be pretty stout. And that that's where I wanted to go next with this because. That's sort of the the comfort zone, the the comforter, the blanket you can wrap this new quarterback in, whoever he is, this new offense, really. This defense is loaded. And you look at position by position, you look at veterans, you look at experience, but I'm looking at playmakers. I'm looking at guys like Charles Snowden and Noah Taylor coming off the edge who are not just good, solid players who are going to play good defense and hold back the other team. They're guys who make game-changing plays. I mean, I think we can all picture Charles Snowden with that long reach, tipping passes, picking them off out of the air, Taylor with his speed off the edge, Joey Blunt 
who, you know, for years we've kind of heard Joey Blunt needs to make the regular play because he's pretty awesome already at making the spectacular play. This defense seems like it's got all the pieces in place. Brenton Nelson, mm-hmm. uh, it's it safety as well. You have to think that Jawan Briggs is going to emerge up front. Yeah, I, I think they could be really good. And defense is Bronco Mendenhall's wheelhouse and always has been. So if if Virginia is, is, is going to really contend for that second consecutive Coastal Division title, or no, excuse me, there is no Coastal Division. What am I thinking? Uh, but if Virginia is going to contend for a second consecutive ACC championship game appearance, then the the defense is going to have to be the leader. You know, what, what does that say about people's perception of Virginia that they win the Coastal Division and what happens? They get rid of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> understanding it's hopefully only for one year. Uh, you know, we talked about the offense. We talked about the defense. We talked about the depth. And one of the things that Virginia's done, and we just, we've seen it here this month, is they've really bolstered their roster with some transfers. Um, mm-hmm. Brought in a couple kids from, from JMU, uh, running back from Towson, uh, you know, they've really kind of added to what they have here. And and that's even before that was Ronnie Walker, the running back from Indiana, uh, Rashawn Henry, the wide receiver from St. Francis. They've really brought in some pieces that will help make things go a little more smoothly this year because depth is going to be important. Oh, depth is going to be paramount, Mike. Talk to any coach in any sport that is preparing to compete in a global pandemic, and they will tell you that depth is probably going to deter depth and health will be the determinants of the season because chances are you are going to lose someone or some ones in your program, either to the virus or to contact tracing for a considerable amount of time. And when that happens, how do you adjust? Have you cross-trained enough athletes at different positions where you've got a wide receiver who can become a running back, who can become a corner? I mean, all kinds of cross-pollinations there. So to me, that that's going to be the fascinating part of this if we're fortunate enough to actually see football. That's a great point. And, and Rashawn Henry, the, the transfer from St. Francis, I, I interviewed one of his former coaches from there, and one of the things he said is he's a guy who can do a lot of things. He, he can play kind of all over the field. They used him that way. And those Swiss Army knife kind of guys, like we used to say about Dalton Keene at Virginia Tech, those kind of guys are going to be invaluable this season. And it's going to be interesting for me to, to see – Henry play this year. Uh, you know, I did a story on him this week. It's it's up at richmond.com. And he's a guy who was not highly recruited coming out of high school. He played in Texas, kind of overlooked, didn't have offers. St. Francis, an FCS program, they lured him across the country <laughs> out to Pennsylvania after nobody signed him on signing day. He worked his way into being a 90-catch, 1,000-yard guy there as a redshirt junior. I mean, this is the ultimate story of, of a kid who kind of worked his way up at a smaller school, and, and now he's getting his shot on a bigger stage. What did he tell you, Mike? He was a no-star guy. Yeah. I'm a zero stars coming out of high school. <laughs> That's why I went all the way to St. Francis. There you go. Uh, 
So, and, and a guy who his coach said he did the extra things, David, he, he went in and he did the work with the jugs gun. He put his hands in the rice bucket to strengthen his grip. He did ball drills with a tennis ball to, to kind of work on his dexterity. So this is a kid who's put in the work to be in position to contribute. Yeah. And, and that, that's what, for the, for the most part, if programs such as Virginia and Virginia Tech are going to be successful, they need to be developmental because they're just not going to out-recruit Clemson and Florida State and the SEC schools. They're going to have to develop guys who are not five and four stars. Since we're talking about UVA, let's bring in our guest this week. I've known Damon Dillman since his time as a TV sports reporter back in Harrisonburg. We crossed paths covering David, your alma mater, JMU. Uh, Damon spent the last nine years as the outstanding sports anchor for the CBA station in Charlottesville. He's been named this year for the fourth time the Virginia Sportscaster of the Year. And then, of course, because the sports media industry never makes any sense. He was let go by the station. Like myself, he and his wife recently had a baby boy. So don't worry, Damon's keeping plenty busy, but he's taking some time out to talk to us today. Damon, thanks for thanks for joining us. This this is an honor. This is a distinct honor. I, I imagine it goes up there with your four <laughs> Sportscaster of the Year awards. Uh, this, is, this is up there with being a part of the championship dodgeball tournament at Monticello High School a few years ago. <laughs> there's, no, there's no plaque involved with this though, Damon. So there's a badge of honor and that's all I need. Now I understand that you're joining us from the basement where you're, you're hiding from your in-laws. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know if hiding is the right word. I just thought it'd be a little quieter down here, but yeah, my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law has been here for a few days helping out with the baby. So, well, she wanted to see him first of all, she hasn't seen him in a few months. Obviously things are a little, little weird right now in the world, but yeah, you know, it's a little quieter down here. Thought I'd be able to focus on you guys a little better. That sounds smart. Well, things are, are very weird in the world right now. And for this part of the show, we're trying to be as normal as we can be and, and talk a little bit about football and understanding we don't know what's coming and understanding that we don't know if there's going to be a kickoff in September or not. We wanted to talk to you a little bit about UVA football. And first off, just big picture, this is a program under Bronco Mendenhall that, that has transformed itself, really. And you've kind of had a front row seat for that. Give me your take on where the program's at right now. Yeah, I think the word I would use is is stability. It's just so stable now as a program, the stability that Bronco has brought. I remember I got here I got here in 2011. That was the first season I covered. And that was Mike London's ACC Coach of the Year season when they went to the Chick-fil-A Bowl when they were playing for a Coastal Division title. And I was like, oh, so this is what it's going to be like covering an ACC football program. And then obviously there was no stability from that point forward. Everything was up in the air. There were changes every year, changes in coaching staff, changes in quarterback, changes in scheme. And since Bronco has gotten here, obviously things bottomed out in his first season, but I think they needed to as they kind of rebuilt everything from the ground up. And that's exactly what they've been able to do is rebuild things in their vision, bring in players who fit that vision, who fit the schemes that they want to run. And it's just, it's, 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 this will be interesting this season because this is sort of a new generation. The guys they initially brought in are now the seniors, are now the fourth year juniors on this team. And so, but there's just a stability. There's just the quarterback position. There's no more, well, there is this year, but prior to this year, there haven't been any question. A lot of the other positions they've just built from the ground up. The defense is filled with guys. Guys who are 
who were part of that first recruiting class, who are now the heart and soul of this defense going into their fourth and final season. So just stability is what Bronco has been and his staff, even on the coaching staff, there haven't been a lot of changes in the coaching staff. Guys have left, obviously, Sooto left after last season, but there haven't been there hasn't been that upheaval in the coaching staff either. And it's just it's just onward. Just I know unbroken growth is their term, but that's what they've been able to do. You mentioned the quarterback position, and obviously Bryce Perkins was such a huge part of the turnaround, and and, and he was just a sort of one of those once in a lifetime maybe kind of athletes with some of the things he could do. But Damon, they feel pretty good about their options at quarterback this fall, don't they? I think so. I think they, they've liked Brennan Armstrong from the day he basically, I mean, obviously they liked him, but I think he has just, he brings an edge to practice is the sense that I've always gotten a competitiveness to practice that that they really like. And he brings that into the huddle now. And Keaton Thompson brings, he brings competition for Brennan Armstrong. He's pushing Brennan Armstrong. Obviously he's in a tough spot, not being here over the summer because of the circumstances. I know we don't want to talk about how weird things are. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to, but yeah, I think it I think it might be a little different if Keaton Thompson had been here over the summer. It's really difficult for him to get up to speed, I'm sure, quickly right now given the circumstances, but Brennan Armstrong has been in this offense for a few years. He's shown glimpses of what he can do. He broke that big run against Louisville as a true freshman. He's made some plays in other spots here or there, filling in when Perkins has gone down for a series or two with injuries. But I know the coaching staff has always really liked kind of that competitive edge that he brings. And now this is his opportunity to bring that into the huddle as the guy. And and we'll see how that goes. Guys, you mentioned both Armstrong and Thompson. If there is a season this year, I get the sense that Depth is going to be paramount at every position, including quarterback, because you just never know when you might have a guy end up in isolation or quarantine, missing games, missing practice. And there, I, I think that bringing Thompson in is going to serve Virginia quite well, whether he earns the starting gig or not. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I keep thinking of it like the, the president and the vice president. I'm wondering if maybe uh, Thompson and Armstrong shouldn't be allowed in the same meeting room or in the same right. dorm. Yeah, Just, how do you, you do that? You, right? you don't want them both being exposed and locked down at, at the same time. And David, you, you make a good point about depth. And Damon, it's kind of what you were talking about, building some of these positions from the ground up I look at the offensive line which it just it's felt like a disaster for so long it seems like they have the pieces to have an experienced effective offensive line this year well I remember when Bronco first took over that was one of the points of emphasis from day one essentially was yeah building up that offensive line there wasn't any depth there at that position and any of those positions at all and that's it's been such an emphasis in recruiting since they've gotten here that's been one of their favorite spots to go out and get graduate transfers who can kind of plug in immediately and help out and add to that depth and now I think this is this is year five of emphasizing that position in recruiting and emphasizing that position in development yeah now you do have a deep position guy Guys who've played a lot of football. If you look at the depth chart, Gellerstead was the grad transfer from Penn State. He probably would have played a lot last year if he hadn't gotten hurt last summer. He's back in the mix now with a bunch of guys who did play all last year and have played previously. These are guys who have been on the field for two, three, four years in this offense. And and when you're talking about a deep veteran offensive line like that, I think that's that's a solid foundation, a solid building block for what you're trying to do now moving forward going into this season. It's also a solid foundation when you don't 
don't have experience under center, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Another great point, because if you think about a lot of what they did with Perkins, and, and part of this was Perkins was a unique athlete, but you guys know part of what they did was have Bryce kind of run away from the trouble. <laughs> right? I mean, they'd say, okay, we know this line isn't going to hold up, so we're going to move the pocket. We're going to do some things. And uh, certainly with, with less experienced quarterbacks, and Keaton Thompson played at, at Mississippi State, but um, he didn't play a ton. He started two games. Uh, he won them both. He, you know, he's been on some big stages, but um, that line certainly is going to make things a little easier, you would think. One of the things that makes things harder is going to be Hasis Dubois, gone. Joe Reed, gone. Uh, Terrell Jenna is a guy we've gotten to know. Damon, what do you make of, of Terrell Jenna, the player? And, and what do you make of Terrell Jenna maybe off the field? I think off the field first, I think he's just, he's the kind of veteran leadership that, that good football teams have. He's a guy who's kind of grown up. He's talked a lot about growing up behind Hasis Dubois and behind Joe Reed and just kind of watching the way they have they have led this team, that receiver room, and now he feels like it's his turn and he feels like he's ready for that responsibility. And I think we saw him grow up a little bit, especially in the second half of last season. We've seen him grow up a little bit more on the football field too. I think, I remember he became one of Bryce Perkins's favorite targets in third down situations going back two seasons ago. Bryce's first season as the quarterback, a lot of times late in games when they need a third down, it was Jana who was making those catches. And I think he gained a lot of trust with Bryce Perkins in those situations. And then last Last year, as Reed and Dubois drew so much more of the focus from opposing defenses, Jana was able to kind of grow a little bit more on the field into a bigger role beyond just those third down catches. We North Carolina, he had that big game. He had the touchdown in the bowl game. So I think, I don't know if he's necessarily a big play kind of guy, but I think he's a reliable receiver. Marcus Higgins, I remember talking to, said Jana's first game, it was a third down and he dropped it. And Marcus Higgins thought to himself briefly, oh, I don't know if this guy has what we need. And he said, all Jana has done since then is work to make sure something like that didn't happen again. And he's lived up to that. And now he's going to be the guy. He's going to be that number one guy. When I look at this offense, I, I mean... My question becomes, you talk about losing Dubois, you talk about losing Joe Reed, even Bryce Perkins, who's the big play guy? Who's the guy who's going to break, who's the threat to break it on any play? Because those were the three who were essentially the threats to break it on any given play, especially when Bryce Perkins was healthy. Who can run away from guys? Who can make those big plays? Alameda Zacchaeus two years ago. I don't know if there is if there is a guy like that on this offense right now, maybe Billy Kemp, maybe Tavares Kelly. Yeah, that's a really good point. We talked to a couple of the linemen this week and um, they mentioned that there was a practice where 60 of, of 80 plays they estimated were, were running plays. So this this may be more of a, a ground and pound kind of attack here uh, because you're right that those those really highlight producing the guys that you know you TV guys absolutely love, <laughs> those highlight real guys maybe aren't here this time. Yeah, and who's going to play, who's going to step up and running back guys i mean mm. talapapa's back we still don't know about ronnie walker's eligibility do we we have not heard and and certainly people fans in the commonwealth are, are well aware that you can't predict what the ncaa is going to do <laughs> when it comes to these waivers we'll get more into that later but yeah that's a great point david we, we uh they've got a lot of options and a lot of options that we don't know a whole lot about. Yeah, and, and then Shane Simpson, the the other transfer from Towson, who is eligible immediately. It's now, just a completely different, because it felt like we were waiting for years for P.K. Kyer or Lamont Atkins to kind of take that step, emerge, and take control of that spot. Now both of those guys are gone. It's just, yeah, the unknown is absolutely the right word for the running backs. Really good stuff. Now, I said we didn't want to do the, the serious COVID stuff, but Damon, I do want to talk to you a little bit about this topic, and I, I wanted to ask you, 
kind of your take on the role of the media covering COVID-19. We've seen almost a backlash against sports reporters who point out the challenges of playing or report on these outbreaks that campuses are having. And uh, you've had the opportunity now to kind of sit back and, and watch your media colleagues covering COVID, covering the pandemic as it relates to college football. What, what's your take on that topic? I think for starters, it's just, I think it's just really difficult because people want answers that nobody has right now. Like the greatest doctors in the world, in the country are still trying to figure out the answers to a lot of these things. And so to expect football coaches or the media or anybody to have those answers that that these doctors are still trying to figure out is difficult. And I think as as reporters, I think I think everybody's just from the media perspective, I think everyone's just trying to I don't know if not get people's hopes up is the right way of putting it, but I think just trying to be realistic about it and understanding the circumstances behind all this. We see we see with, with North Carolina, what happened to Carolina earlier this week, or what happened what happened at Notre Dame and just the real it's just the real life implications of it go so far beyond the football field. And I think you have to respect that. And I think media members are trying to respect that. And I think some people some people just want they just want the world to go back to normal. They want there to be football on Saturdays. They want to be able to watch their games, watch their favorite teams. And when someone starts pointing out things they don't want to hear, they resent that. They get angry about that. And that's that's just on them because in my opinion, because the re- this goes so far beyond football and we're still trying to figure this out basically on a day-to-day hour by hour basis. So, I just feel like people there like I said there's that pocket of people who just want things to go back to normal and unfortunately that's not the not the way the world works at the moment and and when they don't get the answers they want to hear they get frustrated which I understand but again it's just it's just not the way things are working at the moment yeah mike if if I would have one bone to pick with some media coverage of the pandemic as it relates to college sports is that some of the gravest forecasts that you read in the media come from an unnamed Power 5 source, an unnamed athletic. If you're going to have a hot take as it it relates to how you think college sports are going to look, put your name on it. I mean, that's all I'm asking. Don't hide behind anonymity. And I don't think we in the media should allow folks to do that. And, And I know sometimes those grave forecasts make for great copy and I've fallen into that trap too. But I think for the most part we've we've got to demand that these people put their name to it. Yeah, that's a really good point and and I think to both your points since we don't know what's coming, uh, it it adds another level to that media coverage. This isn't a case where our sources have the answers and we're trying to pry the answers out and this isn't a case where we know more than we're sharing. Uh, you know, we're all we're all sitting on that same couch <laughs> hoping to be able to turn on the TV and and, and watch some football on Saturday and None of us really know, honestly, right now if that's coming, but uh, certainly that's where we want to head. Certainly we appreciate Damon for joining us today. Thanks for for your time, and uh, hopefully we'll have some real football to talk about here soon. Hey guys, thanks again. Thanks for not forgetting about me out here on the couch with my (laughs) mother-in-law. Never forgotten, brother. (laughs) I'll let you get back to your family. Thanks for your time, Damon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I'll, I'll keep reading your stuff. While UVA was riding high at the end of last season, Tech fans, they had some mixed emotions. On the one hand, the Hokies, they impressively turned around that that sagging season. They had that Friday night loss to Duke where it just seemed like the wheels were coming off. And 
they bounced back to, to come within a victory of another division crown. They kept that beloved bowl streak going. So th- those were the positives. On the other hand, they saw, you know, arguably their most beloved streak, the, the one over rival UVA come to an end and they lost that bowl game to Kentucky. Some fans have pointed to this being a, a pivotal year for Justin Fuente as the coach. And David, if that's the case, he has to like what he's armed with in 2020. He should like it, and he sure sounds like he uh, is optimistic about this squad, Mike. And earlier we were talking about UVA's offensive line. Well, I think the offensive line is the root of the staff's optimism in Blacksburg. I mean, that is an experienced group, and it's also – even though it's experienced – it, it's got some younger guys there. And oh, by the way, Brock Hoffman is finally eligible. So you, you, you throw him in the mix. So I think there's not only quality talent there, there appears to be depth. Yeah, And, and maybe for the first time in a while, because like UVA, it feels like that's been the question mark for a number of years of how good could the offensive line be? Could they consistently run the football? And, you know, a lot of attention is paid to the running backs. And are you going to have a thousand yard rusher? They've only had one in recent memory. That was Trayvon McMillan. And, and then he left. <laughs> um, but a lot of that has to do with the offensive line. And this is an offensive line that has some experience, but it's got some size and some strength. I mean, this looks like, you know, the coaches always say these look like the guys when they get off the bus they look like football players and these guys look like football players. That certainly bodes well. Another thing that bodes well is Hendon Hooker looked pretty good as this team's quarterback. He's another guy competing for a job now with the Oregon transfer Braxton Burmeister this preseason. David, what do you make of, of that battle? Is it uh, even footing? Is it, you know, we'll see who wins or, or is Hendon Hooker the guy to beat? I think he's the guy to beat Mike, just simply from, not only an experience standpoint, but from an accomplishment standpoint. And again, Burmeister is someone we haven't seen. What, 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 do, we, what do we know about him? Precious little. Uh, we know what we've seen of Quincy Patterson in, in, in spot duty. But Hooker is the one that we have all seen the most. And for, for all the high and, – and trust me, I'm all aboard the Sam Howell train – at, at, at North Carolina, I mean, the guy threw multiple touchdown passes in every game last year as a true freshman. That's that's absurd. But Hendon Hooker had a better passer rating, and I, I know passer ratings are you know you can you can call it a sketchy stat, but Hooker's efficiency rating was was better than Sam House, and that's pretty good. Yeah, and Hooker came into the starting lineup. And he won the first six games he started. Remember, yeah. he missed the Notre Dame game. So we can get as caught up as we want in statistics. Fans can point to whatever numbers you want to point to. Coaches go home at the end of the night and say, we win when that guy's on the field. Now, maybe there's more of an upside with someone else, but Hendon Hooker's a young kid. He's a young kid with a live arm, with a lot of talent, a kid who comes from an athletic family, grew up you know, loving Randall Cunningham, <laughs> the, the old Eagles quarterback. So this is a guy with an upside. So I think when people think about, okay, Hendon Hooker versus the promise of what Braxton might be, they need to take into account that Hendon Hooker is not a static uh, quantity here. Hendon Hooker 
will be better. Hendon Hooker will be more, able to do more, understand more, more dynamic. So I think it's going to be a fascinating battle. I think they're both uh, really good candidates. I think the coaches have made it clear they're excited about Burmeister, that he is more athletic than maybe we were thinking in the media. Uh, but I think Hendon Hooker is going to be a tough guy to unseat. Mike, how many picks did he throw last year? Two? Yeah. And that's, if you're Justin Fuente, Brad Cornelson, that's like the number one statistic. What's what's their favorite phrase? Predicted outcomes. That's what they want from their quarterback. And th- that was always, and hey, he did a lot for the program and I really liked him and I think you did too. But that was their issue with Ryan Willis. And you saw it in the opener last year against Boston College with what he threw, four, four mm-hmm. picks. I mean, that's, that's twice as many picks in one game as Hooker threw the entire season. Ryan Willis was phenomenal to watch, phenomenal to talk to. Scared money, don't make money. Yeah, he was right. the, the embodiment of the gunslinger. But if you're the coaching staff, yeah. you know, the fans like the gunslinger a lot better than the quarterback coach or the offensive coordinator or the head coach likes the gunslinger. And and again, you want to talk about predicted outcomes, talk about winning the games you play. And uh, Virginia Tech staff knows how to win with Hendon Hooker. The question will be, do they feel like they have a, an even better path to victory with, with Braxton? And then part of that question is going to be, you know, what's around them? And uh, like we said with UVA, this should be a team, especially early on, that can lean on its defense. It, it should be. And then the, the fascinating dynamic there is the coaching turnover on that side of the ball. And Justin Hamilton, who you did a really exceptional feature on in his first season, replacing Bud Foster as coordinator. Yeah, Justin's story is just fascinating to me that the fact that he kind of worked his way up. He was a strength coach at a NAIA school and essentially had to beg <laughs> for the shot to be the defensive coordinator. And, you know, here we are very few years later, and he's got one of the premier defensive coordinator positions in the country. When you think about taking over for Bud Foster, uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch Justin work. We haven't had a chance to speak to him yet since he got the job. Really in- intrigued by what he's going to say and and his approach. And you know, kind of reminds me sometimes of, of politics. And do you want to distance yourself from the previous administration, or do you want to kind of ride those coattails a little bit? And you know, Justin Hamilton might be the perfect balance of a guy who who was under Coach Foster, coached under him, played under him, understands it but is kind of the young new guy and, and can go his own direction. I'm really going to enjoy, I think, getting getting to know Justin Hamilton better. Well, and it's very similar to when Justin Fuente replaced Frank Beamer. <laughs> and, and, and I thought that was part of Fuente's really strong transition was he walked that balance between embracing the past and especially with the number 25 and, and the special teams and always wanting Coach Beamer to be around practice whenever he was comfortable with it, but yet making the program his own. And I think that's what you'll see Hamilton do. And also, Mike, Fuente and, and, the, and the rest of the, the folks at Virginia Tech were very intentional in surrounding Justin Hamilton with some very experienced people, most notably 
Tracy Clays, who has been a coordinator, and also Bill Tierlink, who is regarded, who, who came from the Buffalo Bills, who is regarded as one of the best defensive line coaches in football, period. Yeah, I think they've done a magnificent job of setting Justin up for success, right? I mean, it, it's his show. He's the guy, but he's got the resources. Um, you know, if there's a position that he hasn't worked with, it's the defensive line. They go out and get somebody who's got an amazing resume for that. If there's a knock on him, it's that he doesn't have uh, coordinator experience at that top level. Well, Tracy Clays, he's been a head coach. He's been a coordinator. He has the resources around him to be successful if – as Bud Foster believes, as Justin Fuente believes, as I think we kind of buy into, he's a rising star in the business. They've set him up to, to be successful. And that's that's what you want to do. That, that Mike, is the mission of any manager. And a, and a head coach is a manager, make, make no mistake. Their job is to make, create a work environment where the people under them can be successful. That is job one. So we've talked about Virginia Tech's fall camp. We've talked about UVA's fall camp. That brings us to this week's Who You Got. Thank you, Mike. It is Who You Got. Now with Tech and UVA scheduled to meet this year in week two of the season instead of at uh, Thanksgiving time, we won't have the usual year's worth of information to predict the winner of that game. But right now, which team looks stronger heading into 2020? Who you got, the Hokies or the Hoos? David. I will take Virginia Tech. The game is in Charlotte, or excuse me, in Blacksburg at Lane Stadium. It is in week two. It may well be, we don't know, Virginia's opener, which would add another fascinating dynamic to it. But I think especially early in the season, and given its experience at quarterback, that the Hokies are more prepared for that clash. Mike? I went into this wanting to say Virginia. I think that defense is going to be the kind of defense that carries you earlier in the season. I think the offense will have enough pieces, but I, I just can't pull the trigger. And, and, you know, you mentioned, David, the game being in Blacksburg. What does that mean when the, the stands are probably empty, right? When they're, you don't have the fans. and all, But it does mean something. I do think the uncertainty on offense is such a question. This is the most intriguing Tech-UVA matchup that I will cover. Uh, Justin Hamilton being new, uh, Bryce Perkins being gone, all of these moving pieces. But I think you're right. I think Virginia Tech has more known commodities from quarterback to the offensive line to the defense. I think both these teams are stronger than maybe some people realize this year, but I think Virginia Tech is, is just a step ahead. Not having a game in week one, if that's the case for UVA, how will that affect them? Hard to say. Again, I that UVA defense keeps making me rethink this, but at the end of the day, I, I think Virginia Tech uh, is just in a slightly better place right now. Agreed. Well, there is one negative for the Hokies, who we both like where they're sitting right now, but the NCA, as it seems to always do, uh, has ruled against another tech transfer player seeking a waiver. Uh, you know, it happened with Brock Hoffman. It happened with Broxton Burmeister both last year. Um, you know, Hoffman's case with, with the medical, with his family, I think stunned people. Raheem Blackshear from Rutgers uh, was largely widely expected to be granted a waiver to play this year. The NCA shot that down. 
David, we both expect the, the one-time transfer rule to, to come into effect next year, probably. Um, we know it's coming. But how do we make sense right now of this NCAA ruling? You, you can't, Mike, because number one, we don't know the basis for the young man's appeal. These are very private matters, and they are handled by compliance offices. Now, with Hoffman, we did know because he and his family made it a very public matter. But the Blackshears have have not followed that track. It is such an intriguing and often convoluted process. I've, I've talked to some compliance people about how the transfer waivers work. And NCAA staff make the initial ruling. Well, now it's an appeal. And that appeal is ruled on by a seven-member legislative relief panel that, oh, by the way, includes Virginia Tech's Tim Parker, who used to be the compliance director. He's now outside the athletic department, but he's still on the committee. Well, with Blackshear, he will have to recuse himself just as he did with Brock Hoffman. So that cuts it down to six people on the committee. Three to three doesn't get you anything. They're going to have, it's going to have to be a four to two vote for Blackshear to overcome that initial staff rejection of his appeal. And Justin Fuente said, number one, that he loves the young man's talent. I mean, I've rarely, if ever, heard Fuente gush about a kid as much as he did about Blackshear the other day with us. And number two, he said they like their their chances for winning this on appeal. Well, they like their chances with Hoffman too. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah, and I should probably recuse myself as Blackshear was a Rutgers guy, but I, I got to watch him and I understand what, what Justin Fuente is excited about. He, he's a kid that can play all over. He, he's a great pass catcher out of the backfield. Uh, Rutgers would use him in the slot. Um, they could use him on end of rounds. They handed him the ball like a traditional running back, pitch it out wide to him. There's a lot of things he can do. He'd be an invaluable piece of the offense. I think what frustrates me, frustrates media, and definitely what frustrates Virginia Tech and its fans is the seeming inconsistency, right? We, we see quarterbacks and, and other players transferring seemingly for playing time and they're granted waivers. And then we see kids who seem to have a case, especially in, in look at Brock Hoffman with his mother's illness and, and her recovery. And those ones get shot down. And you're right. We don't get to see behind the curtain. We don't know exactly what's going on. But on the surface, there just seems to be no consistency. You, you can't predict it, um, which is why I kind of chuckled when Justin said he felt good about the appeal. And I, I think we all kind of laughed or, or snickered to think like, how could you possibly feel good about anything with the NC2A and, and they're kind of all over the map track record. But uh, I don't know what the solution is. You know, Blackshear is interesting because he played four years and then four, four games and then voluntarily shut it down to redshirt to preserve his year. How does the NCA view that? And, you know, at the end of the day, David, does any of it matter long-term? Because we do expect that one-time transfer rule to go into effect. Yeah, it, it, and it will. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I I had an interesting, or I found Mac Brown very interesting yesterday. And he talked about how, and, and this is a direct quote, 
I really feel like in this time of COVID, we all have to be really generous to each other and they need to help all these young people with the rules. Now he was talking about granting extra years of eligibility and such, but I think that sentiment should hold true with pretty much everything right now. We're in the middle of a daggone pandemic. And, and I know the NCAA's hands are tied here in terms of revealing information, but you better have a darn good reason for denying a young man's waiver these days. Because by golly, if, if they're sacrificing all this during this time, they ought to be able to play. Well said. Well said by you. Well said by Mac Brown, two guys who know a thing or two about college athletics and have been around college athletics for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, Mac even more than I. That's saying something. But uh, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts. Just find the RTD podcast channel. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find all the articles that David and I referenced on the website now. Special thanks to Damon Dillman for joining us today. Always great to have a guest. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again in two weeks. Two weeks.